Hey guys, what's going on? This is David Avalon with another episode of Breaking the Guard with my co-host Robert Drysdale. <clears throat> Excuse me. In today's episode, I get back from my hunting trip and I share quite a bit about the whole experience, which uh, if you're into hunting or maybe you're curious and peering into what it's like, I share pretty much everything about my experience there. And um, afterwards, Rob and I start talking about uh, something that happened with the Olympics and in general, focusing on what would be a core curriculum for jiu-jitsu, which we have a hard time agreeing on because it's such a wide and complicated sport. So that kind of gets into the weeds a bit. And uh, finally, we rehash some old war stories, uh, at least I do, about some of the competitions, and Rob did as well, and learning how to stay in the zone and gaming tournament point systems and whatnot. People don't like to hear about it, but it's the reality of competition. So Rob and I share some insights about that as well. So we got a little bit of everything going on in this episode, so hopefully you enjoy the conversation, and uh, go ahead and tune in. Before we get started, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, which is BJJCradle.com. BJJCradle.com is Robert Drysdale's Cradle Series course, which, again, if you've listened to this podcast, you've probably heard me say this a million times already, but if you haven't got the course yet, now's the time to get it. All right, it's available both in DVD and online streaming formats, and the course discusses how to use a classic wrestling pin, the cradle, but to use it for passing half guard, uh, getting submission holds, like guillotine chokes, darts chokes, Japanese neckties. I show some variations as well and how to take the back using the cradle. So very good course. Uh, like I said, a lot of people overlook pins because they don't realize the utility in it. But it is a really good tool to have because most people are, are really ill-equipped on how to defend them or what could happen if someone cradles them. So go ahead, visit bjjcradle.com. So you can get some sneak peeks into what the course entails and, of course, the order. Again, you can get it online and stream it right into your phone. So really convenient, especially if you're mat side. So again, go ahead and visit bjjcradle.com to learn more. Hey guys, what's going on? David Avalon here with my co-host Robert Drysdale for another episode of Breaking the Guard. Robert, you're coming back from your travels. Where were you this time? Yeah, I just got back from uh, from London. I was there for a few days for a little bit of work, a um, little bit of fun, just like four days, quick trip, nice. back and forth. Great to be back. Went to a British Museum. I went to a castle called Hever Castle, it's a small castle. Went to the uh, Shakespeare Globe Theater. Not the original. That one burnt down. Like that was, It's a replica. You know, saw Romeo and Juliet. That was pretty cool. Uh, that's yeah. cool to be able to see in the Shakespeare Theater. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. That was awesome. You can see it, it, and even everything, like everything, if, like outside, like the stairs leading up to the balcony. I had like a little balcony, like right next to the stage. It, it is exactly as it would have been, you know, 400 some years ago. So it was very, very original. The play itself was not, it was, they tried to modernize it. We had like a bunch of teenagers dressed the way... We dress today like you know modern mm. wear, 
and they try to give a modern twist to it, which I'm not. I have I'm two minds about. I think it lost. I mean, the play's still great, but it's. I prefer I'm more traditionalist. I think I prefer something closer to the original. Everything was so traditional, yeah. Except the way the actors actors were were dressed, right? That's what kind of took some of the, the ambience away. Because for a minute, it almost felt like I was traveling in time. You know, I think I lost some of that second the play started, but it was great overall. It was great. A modern taken from you and Juliet. I would imagine with a lot, a lot of phone play. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, I mean they, they didn't have the phone. They, they got, but they had like everything. But they had like bicycles, and they had what was the other one? I'm just like you know, it was. Yeah, that's the only thing I wasn't crazy about. But everything, I'm surprised how many kids were there. Mm. I thought it'd be a lot of old people, like a lot of like young people. You know, I was surprised. But anyway, that was like probably the highlight of the trip. What else did I do? Not much. Just got back on Friday, back to the grind. But um, yeah, man. So I know you went hunting recently. Yes, sir. Did you kill anything or no? Yeah, I got myself an elk. You got one. <laughs> yeah, with the bow. With the bow. That's badass. So um, I actually put a video of me eating the heart raw. <laughs> so you you ate it? Yeah. yeah. Oh no! <laughs> I'll show you later. It's but, gross. Uh, so like the whole story. I finished the jujitsu camp here, which went great, and then that very day I drove up to Elko, Nevada, which is like right on the border of Idaho, pretty much. And um, we get up there. I meet my buddy, Mike, who actually I met in Costa Rica. Yeah. He did one of the camps, and he's been hunting for like 30 years. So he's like the perfect guy to have to like mentor me. So I was like, I was a white belt now. I'm like, okay, I'll learn the ways. So I did all the studying I could do here. I did yeah. practice a lot with shooting and whatnot. So we get there day one. Uh, we wake up five in the morning. We go glassing, which essentially is when you get binoculars and you start looking around on a hilltop to see yeah. where the animals are. And fortunately, that first day, a ton of elk. Yeah. At least for me, it was a lot of elk. You saw like three different herds. They were making a lot of noise. Uh, so we set up a plan, or he did rather, of how to intercept one of these herds. So we go down through the forest a little bit. We get on the trail. And as we're walking on this trail, we hear some wrestling in the bushes. So we drop our packs, and then he makes an elk call. And he essentially has like a little like diaphragm thing, which is like a whistle that you can make the elk calls. So he does like a cow call, and right away we hear an elk running towards us. No way. So we're like, oh, crap, we got to move, right? And uh, we move off the trail, maybe just like 20 yards, and there's a couple bushes there. There's like a big bush and a little bush. He's behind the big bush. I'm behind the little one. And then he motions me to move over there so I have more, you know, coverage and as i'm moving uh a calf pops up right in the middle of the, of the trail and it's like looking at me dead in the eyes so then i stop moving i'm in a, in a crouch it's stopped moving i already had my bow out with the arrow knocked so i just released and uh caught him right in the lungs so that's an ideal shot it's a double lung shot so uh, it ran off. and then so you caught it from the side, is that right? Yeah. So it goes, so the, it goes their, through the chest. Yeah. So their instinct is when they spot danger, they stand sideways and they look at you. The idea is like if you make any move, they run. And they're yeah. running you know, away that from That puts you. them in a perfect position to get killed. Yeah. That's what natural selection has not figured out yet. <laughs> we have not had enough elks in, in, in contact with David Adelaide. <laughs> Shooting arrows at them for them to figure that out. Yeah, so unfortunately for them, and deers and all the other servants do the same type of thing, apparently. So that's so cool. So when uh, they shot, she uh, she ran off the trail, yeah. and then you wait typically like thirty minutes for the animal to to pass. 
because you don't want to spook it and make it run further than it has to. So we had breakfast right where we're at. And then after that, we went to follow the trail. And as you can see, the blood trail. The arrow, unfortunately, was lost in the wilderness. Because, like, the arrows passed through, which so, is something... So it's still running after it, you it, shot it. Yeah, yeah. It, they don't drop dead right in the spot. Only if you get a it's hard a heart, shot. Yeah. But the problem is a hard shot's very tricky because it's right next to the scapula. Yeah. It's a big, rich bone. And if you hit that, you won't kill the animal. You'll hurt it. And then it's just going to be suffering. So you don't want a hard shot. You want a lung well, shot. Well, you would, but it's just very difficult. So you're so better you off aiming for the lungs. Yeah. You're better off aiming. The lungs is a really big area for the most part. So there's, you have a lot more leeway. You don't have to be like hitting a pinpoint. The lungs, essentially, on a full-grown elk, you would have like 8 by 12 inches. Yeah. So that's a pretty big target. Yeah. You know? And anywhere you hit there, generally, if you get both lungs, they'll pass. And uh, the arrows also, a lot of people don't realize, they pass through. They go right through like a bullet. Yeah. So it's pretty gnarly. Oh, through the, yeah, yeah, yeah all the yeah, way yeah, through. All the oh, way wow. through from both sides. That's why it's a double lung shot because it's yeah. going to hit one, hit the other one, and then and get up the, the, other the way. body. Oh, the wow. Way. I didn't want that deep. They're, they're going out with a lot of power. Yeah. And so that's why like my arrow got lost because it went into yeah. like some thick brush. And yeah. like, Gone. No, it's not going to be impossible. How much do they cost? Out of curiosity, the arrows yeah. like twenty bucks each. So okay, it's not too bad. Not too bad, more, but yeah. like you don't want to lose a bunch of them. You no, know? no, you're okay losing one or two a trip. Yeah. That's it. And <laughs> I, I broke one of mine practicing yeah. here, so I was like, ah. So I only had like four arrows left when I went out there. So like now I got three. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, we followed the blood trail, and uh, it took us like probably like 30, 40 minutes to find the body because it only went a hundred yards away. But it starts bush. weaving around, and you have to follow these little drips of blood. And at one point in a bush off the trail, there was a lot of blood, and a yeah. tree went down. So it looked like it crashed, stood there for a bit, and then ran somewhere else. But there wasn't much blood after that point because it, it looked like it bled out. So you barely found it. Yeah, so we started doing a little grid search, looking, looking, and eventually it was just off the trail. I saw the body, and then uh, we went there and confirmed it was... A little bit higher than, than the ideal shot, but still double lung. And uh, from there, we start field dressing it. So if you, let me ask you this. We, we talked about this like a many podcasts ago, like many moons ago. And we talk, we're going to talk about chase hunting, right? So back in the day, you would yeah. hurt an animal and just outrun it because it can only run for so long. Even if it wasn't that hurt, animals can't sprint for very long because they have to stop to cool down, right? Yes. So we catch up to them. In an open field, could you do that to an elk, just outrun it? Because an open field, what I, the reason I say open field is because it's easy for us to run and easy to spot them. Yeah. Like in a bushy area, it might be harder, right? Like mountains might be harder to keep up with it. But if you're talking about open, could you potentially kill an elk like that? A persistence hunt? I'm not sure. In a, if it's open field, I guess technically you could. thing is, they live in very mountainous terrain. So okay, that's yeah. So that's the terrain is everything. Because like, there's there, there's going to be a point where they can go places you can't go, right? Well, they're just going to be able to get there a lot faster. So yeah. like, they might be able to rest a lot more than yeah. They normally, it might take forever. Yeah, because you know, when you're talking about persistence hunters, at least from my knowledge, yeah. they're like the Aborigines in yeah. Africa, plains. Yeah, I'm thinking like, and it's also easier to track when like, like I said, this elk was only a, probably less than a hundred yards away, yeah. forty minutes to find, and it's not moving. It's dead. You know, so if it was moving, yeah. it would just, it would get lost really yeah. fast. And it's hard for you to move in areas where it's easy for them to move. Because when you're moving to a thick brush, you're like, and you're making yeah. all this noise, you know, and you're going slow. They can just run through it. Yeah. So I think in those areas, like. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. 
you know well, there's something about like uh, um like having an i mean killing it with a rifle i think would be nowhere near as fun as a bow and arrow um i think spear or something like that would be like the next level um i've never i killed a rabbit once with a 22 that's as much as i've ever done <laughs> Yeah. But it's it sounds like a lot. I mean, you're going to get an angry email from some animals activist, David, just so you know. Yeah, as soon well, as someone listens to this podcast. Well, just so they know, we harvested everything. So I ate, you know, I took the liver, all the, the muscles. Is the, that, is, I mean, are they okay with that if you do that? I think so, right? That's a crazy Well, thing. I think it's a little better in the sense that if you're a pure vegan, you'll probably still not be happy about it. If yeah. you're like, I guess it's it the difference between being ethically vegan and then like health vegan. Diet or health vegan, yeah. right? Like, Ethically, they think, from my understanding, um, all animal kills are not. Yeah, killing. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. an interesting discussion because they call it speciesism, right? It's like a new term, like one of the many new terms mm. I am obligated to become, become accustomed to. Um, but basically, it's the idea that all species, all life is equally valid. Yeah, which is, I don't. It th- seems eth- morally, ethically sound, but very anti-natural as well. Yeah, because we would have not had if that were true. If that is a, a standard to follow, we would not have made it out of the Stone Age. Like we would, like we don't know not. We, we because we're farming animals. We've been farming. That's what got us out of prehistory, right? So yeah. I, I don't know how far he really take that argument that all species are created equal. And to, to like for example, the, for the most people, this is going to be the most ethical hunt you could do. Uh, most fair hunt because the shot was taken uh, taken at less than 20 yards yeah it was very close yeah like 20 yards is a little bit further out than this room but it's not that far yeah which i was fortunate that it was so close can you believe i still think in meters 13 <laughs> years and i guess like i still like i, I, I mean, well meters then it's like about meters. like 17 meters more or less okay, so yeah. it's pretty close right yeah. um and my buddy was telling me that's so this was too easy yeah. for your first hunt it was within the first two hours of hunting oh, okay you your, got you got your yeah. first shot within 20 yards you know it was a kill Be- shot beginner's luck they call it yeah beginner's luck you know so anyways when well, we you've st- been practicing i've been watching you've been practicing for months well i when i told him i was at practice he's like you practice a lot right because i thought i shot over a thousand arrows like in six weeks oh wow yeah i was i was out every day boom 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 multiple times a day nice so i i feel that let that, me know next time you do that i might come over man like I, i'd love to i'd love to give it a go yeah, I might get into that, man. Like I, I was um, um, sorry if I interrupted you, no, no, but just before I forget, so I'm turning forty this year in oh, October. Yeah. I did. I got my forty already. When yeah. you got your forty? When you July turn seven? July, just now, just recently. Yeah, just yeah. recently. Didn't give yeah. you the happy birthday. The happy birthday. <laughs> but I'm turning forty in October, and everyone's like, "What are you gonna do? You're gonna do like honestly, man? I'll normally forget my my people don't remind me my birthday. I'll forget. Like I never even think about it. But everyone's like, "Oh, you got to do something. Let's go to Cancun and get wasted." I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't sound very I don't know. It doesn't sound very appealing to me. So I had the idea. Uh, last time I was in Maui, these guys invited me to go boar hunting. Mm. And um, I was like, man, that sounds like a great thing to do. So th- what they do is they, well, the dogs do most of the work, really. You just got to keep up with the dogs. The dogs will find the boar. They'll, you got to make sure you keep up with the dogs. Yeah. Five dogs, I think, is the number they, 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 they want. It's like four to five dogs can outdo a boar. They get to the boar. The boar is pinned down. One of the friends comes from behind, lifts the leg up, the boar's legs up, right? And then you come in with a knife and stab it in the heart. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how you kill a boar, apparently. Um, it's not particularly dangerous because the dogs are taking all the risk, really. I mean, as long as you don't get rental. I mean, if the boar 
manage to free itself. I suppose it could hurt you. You just got to be careful. But, you know, it's not the most dangerous. It's probably not as dangerous as it sounds. But, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. That's going to be my 40th birthday. I'm, I'm nice. Gonna I'm going to go to Maui and kill a boar. Yeah, man. That's the way to do it. <sighs> yeah, it's, I think it's something about, like, pulling the trigger is not... It's just not as hard as stabbing something, you know, with a knife. Like, that's going to be a lot harder. I'm almost like, I'm going back and forth on it. Man. Can I, can, I'm not going to be able to do it when the time comes. I like to think I will, but it's, it's kind of, you know, I've never killed anything like that. Well, I'll tell you my side of this, right? Because I was thinking the same thing. Right? I'm like, well, you know, when it comes time, because I watched a lot of the YouTube videos of people hunting, and the, like first-person perspective type thing. I'm like, this is pretty intense, you know, because it's not a still target, you know, sitting there looking stupid, right? Yeah, like, it's yeah. a, a live animal, it's yeah. looking around, it makes noise, and then you're going to be there, you, you have to, you know, even with a bow, you're technically pulling the trigger, there's yeah, a release, yeah. right? Uh, so there's a release. But there's think. a lot more yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, to it than, yeah, pulling the trigger on a gun, Yeah, what I'm saying. So you're doing all that, I'm like, oh, I wonder how that's going to feel. So I did lots of visualizations, like I treat this like every, like a competition, yes, right? exactly. There are a lot of training. My buddy told me practice a lot of kneeling shots because it's going to be times you're going to be shooting from your knees, which it ended up being. So he, he was on the money on that, right? Um, but when it came to it, I just boom, boom, boom. And then afterwards, he's like, how's your heart rate? I'm like, eh, like normal, fine, you know, mm -hmm. like 70s, 80s, right? And it's like, I didn't feel like any different. And then the second part, I thought, well, still dressing the animal, that's going to be kind of gory, yeah. right? Because I had to cut that skin in. And you know, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming he's like helping you do that. Yeah, he's never yeah. done it before. Right? I, I, I bought an online course on elk hunting, you know? Like I buy online courses too, right? <laughs> so like, yeah. I bought one and it gives a bunch of videos. So I had a good idea of what to do, but it's one of those things you yeah. want someone showing you firsthand. So he would do one leg and then I would do the other leg and then like, he showed me every different body part and then I would do it afterwards. And it's a lot less bloody than I anticipated. I guess a lot of it is because the animal bleeds out. Right? Well, know, I mean, most of the blood the is internally. If you're skinning it, right? But you're cutting the muscles, you know, out. Well, and most of the blood would be in the arteries, veins. Yeah. So heart, like in the circulatory system. So if you're just going through the muscles, I think that's, yeah, there shouldn't be that much blood. Yeah, there's a lot less blood than I anticipated. Like very little. You know, it's kind of like just butchering meat, which I do all the time. So I'm like, oh, it's just butchering meat. You so, know? But you guys carry, I mean, it's a lot of meat. I mean, it's an elk. Well, this was a smaller elk. So like I said, it was like a calf. Probably like a year old, somewhere around there. Yeah. So not on the big Baby side. Baby killer. <laughs> it's a youngin. The meat's more tender. It's like eating yeah. veal. Right? Yeah. yeah. So that, because I told my buddy afterwards, like, was that like a good shot? You know, like to go yeah. for this? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm like, okay. Um, so it's probably about like, 200 pounds or something, the actual animal. So I was able to drag it a little bit just to like a, because it was in a bush. I dragged yeah. it to like an open area and then we field dress it there and we debone it there. So pretty much you skin down one leg, the torso, the other leg, and you essentially yeah. use the skin like a tarp. Yeah. And then you do all the cutting there. It's interesting is that the shoulder, the front shoulders have no bones or joint. It's only like fascia. Really? Yeah. So, like, to cut off the front legs, you just knife, and it, the leg comes off. It comes off. It's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. They don't have to spread out yeah. wide. They're only going this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. The back legs have a hip joint, of course, and then you have to keep more of that off. You just twist the leg, and it pops. Break it, yeah. And then uh, you finish deboning it, and then the, the head. You so, you bought a course on how to do that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But he... 
you know, I didn't really need the course because he was walking me through yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, even with the course, I'd rather, like, I would want someone who's done it before yeah, next yeah. to me the whole time. It's always yeah. different in theory versus of course, yeah. application. And the head's pretty gnarly because you have to twist it off also. <laughs> like, you cut off a, a little bit around the skin, around the neck, just to get some of the ligaments and tendons loose, and there's this twist, pop, head pops out. And you have to keep the head to prove the, uh, the sex of the animal that you hunted. So you put the tag on the ear. And then... Uh, you got to report that to someone? How you report that... it, and if you're going to have the meat processed by yeah. any butcher, they're going to need to see the head yeah. to prove that you had a valid license. You think a hunting might be something that's under threat? Just mm. thought about that. Like I'm mm. not sure. I know my... There's so... going to be pushback, I can see, but I, I can see this being a next cultural war, like the ethics of hunting. Because it's 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 a, it's, a, it's been such a constant push towards you know what is perceived as political correctness that I wonder where it ends. Like where when is it? Is it going to stop? Like I think that hunting might be a next next a next trench in in, in this war. You know, like, are they going to push to make it illegal? I might want to get my hunting before it becomes illegal. I'm serious because I think that they, it, I I wouldn't be surprised if in like a year or two this just made it illegal. Period. Well, it would be a very ignorant thing, right? Well, because that's, but that's what they champion. All these hunting, uh, all the fees you're paying towards a hunting license, getting the tag and applications, and all that go towards animal conservation because you're not just hunting willy nilly. You're yeah. you're hunting a specific animal. So for for me, it was elk, antlerless elk. Yeah. So essentially, it's female or young, right? That you're hunting. Because there's an abundance of them. There's more of them than that. Yeah. So, like, the big trophy elk the, with the, mm-hmm. you know, antlers. Yeah. My buddy, I guess he said he's been hunting, you know, 30 years. He's never got a tag for one. They're very difficult to get. The license to kill one of those. Yeah. They're very difficult. Because those it's a, are the it's ones, a lottery system, right? They're, they're alpha males, right? So, they're, like, they have many feeds. Isn't that how it works? They have, like, a lot of them. Yeah, that's yeah. That's like a harem that they have, yeah. right? So, yeah. they're, they're less... There are less males than there are females. You would compromise a species if you kill only males, for example. Yeah. So they generally, when they kill males, they are counting the population and they're trying to figure out, okay, which number are we looking to call, you know, to help the population grow. If there's too many males, it creates problems. If there's too many females... Of course, you got to keep a balance. So there's rangers out there that are figuring all this out. And then that's how they give the tags out. They say, okay, you can kill this many of this animal, this many of this sex, you know, so... It's helping control the population and keep yeah. it healthy, you know. So, and the reality is, unless you're going to oppose all meat consumption, yeah, hunting is just like getting meat from the grocery store, except you're doing extra steps. I think it's, yeah, it's just it, there's a, something more humane about it because it is because no an animal way. lives a free life, yes, and you know it gets killed yes. relatively quickly, you know, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. So. Uh, when people are like, oh, that's gross. Like, you're, you're killing the animals. Like, well, do you eat meat? Like, where do you think your meat's coming yeah, from? Exactly, Except yeah, exactly. Except that if you're buying normal beef, it's from it's, an industrialized farm where you have cows and worse. pens, you yeah. know, which I, I, I would think they would rather die, you know, out in the wild versus being penned up, you know? But uh, they lived out in the wild, more importantly, right? Yeah, like, yeah. They died in their environment, absolutely. So the, the, the interesting part about this is getting the heart out, which I was telling you about. Oh, yeah. So you have to cut around the membrane because there's a lot of tissue that holds the heart in the chest cavity. But then at a certain point, you just rip it out. Yeah. And it's like, boom, and it just pops out. And the lungs are attached to it. So that's when I confirmed the shot because you could see the air hole through the, both lungs, you know. And then you cut out the lungs. And apparently my buddy was saying earlier that, you know, it was like a Native American tradition, like to take a bite out of the heart. 
after your first kill. Is that healthy? Uh, I don't know, but I was like, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. YOLO, right? So I'm like, yeah. bit it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It's kind of Chewy like... Chewy what? No, it's more like unseasoned meat. Oh. You know, it's like, oh, okay. It's, Could you, I mean, did you manage to actually get a chunk and oh, like, yeah, chew yeah, it yeah, and yeah. swallow it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll show you the video afterwards. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, yeah, you bite it in. It's not that, again, it's not that bloody or anything like that. Yeah, so it's just like meat. I eat yeah. heart, you know, like cow heart. I've never eaten yeah. cow heart. I mean, Brazil, it's very common. Chicken heart. Like, that's yeah. it's on, on the menu all the time. Yeah, you know? the cow heart's the same. It's kind of like a fillet. The yeah. only difference is, like, the first part of the bite, kind of, like, sinewy. Yeah. Like, membrane. But then the rest is kind of filet-ish, you know? So, yeah. it's a muscle meat. So it yeah. eats very similar to any other meat you would yeah, eat. Yeah, got it. And, uh, that's great, man. It's quite the experience. Yeah. No, we did that. Packed everything away. And then you have to hike everything back. Yeah. Fortunately, we weren't that far from camp. But then uh, we got to eat some of it at the day. Yeah. I cut up some steaks from it. Delicious. And uh, you put everything Elk, in the cooler. Elk meat is delicious. Yeah, it's pretty, great. it's pretty good. I still like, I'm preferring the bison still over the, the elk. But the elk's really good. And I made some here. Like I had to bring it back here and then clean up all the meat afterwards. Yeah. That was more work than anything. It took me like six hours. So I was like taking off fat, membrane. Chopping See, up the I, I've never done any of that. Vacuum so sealing like, it, it, freezing was, it. You know, it would so. take me, I don't even know where to begin. No, to after the first like four hours, I messaged my brother, like, how long does it take you to do it? He's like, oh, it's going to take you a while. You have to get used to doing it. I'm like, yeah. oh, God. And you, you needed a really sharp knife. If your knife. Like, my knife started getting dull after a few hours. Wait, you got a sharpen, yeah? Yeah, I was like, oh, God. So I got my hunting knife and I started using that to like, yeah, man, that's, a, um, that's quite the experience, man. Like, I would love to do something like that. Like, I think, I never had the urge for it, but like, I mean, I just, I'd like to have that experience. You know, you, want, the, you, want, you want to cross it off your bucket list. And, one you know. of the better parts about it is just the actual camping experience, yeah. right? Because when me and him were there, we were the only people there. Yeah. No one else. You know, so just me and him, we're walking in the wilderness. Our camp is set up in a nice, you know, trees. So, like, we have coverage. We're grilling up steaks, so, you know, from the, the elk. You have like a pure night sky. You can see the Milky Way and everything. So it's just, and there's no phones, no internet. You know, no. It's very peaceful. Yeah. Super peaceful. Yeah. You know, so like he, like I got to see the other side of hunting, the more real side, when it was his turn because he was graceful enough to like let me go first. Yeah. Because his thing is actually what you were kind of mentioning before. He wants to try to bring in new people to hunt. Oh, I let me know. Let it, yeah. let him know I'm interested. I'll, yeah. I'll go and. Yeah, I'm sure you. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, man. That sounds like such a great experience. Yeah. So when he went, unfortunately, he had a much tougher time. The elk started moving uh, north. It looks like they were going towards Idaho. So we had a hard time killing him. We had a couple close calls. We had one standoff that was a 90 minute standoff with an elk. Yeah. Where essentially, uh, we found one bedded. It was in between a bunch of trees. So we could see the body, but not enough to take a clear shot. Yeah. And we had to, well, rather he was creeping his way towards it. So it took, like, it was about 90 minutes of trying to inch your way through without making noise. Because it was awake. It was just lying down. And he was within 50 yards. And then it started to rain. And it got up. And we're like, oh, great. Because it was facing this way. And if it walked, like, a few yards there, it was a perfect channel for him to shoot. It made a quick little U-turn and went the other way. Yeah. God, it was like 90 minutes resting on your knees. 
You know how that's like you. <laughs> I can't do 90 seconds, man. 90 minutes. Yeah, you know and you're just like holding there. And, like, oh. and you're slowly unfolding, like going from knees. Yeah. It's to like butt. being a sniper. Yeah. It, that's yeah. what they say. Sniper is like the, it, you know, it's it's the hardest job of the soldier because you have to, even the training, you have to sit there for like, what, like some, I don't know how long it is, but like something like a day. And if you got to pee, you got to go number two. You got to go number. If you can't move, that's part of the job. Is you just got to be on target, waiting. Yeah, you would think, oh, sitting down for like an hour doesn't seem difficult. I'd be terrible yeah. at it. I get fired for like I get like get out of it. I, I wouldn't lie. I don't think I could, man. Like just stay in the same position for that long. It sounds awful. Well, then we, we like I started like a, we were both double knee, and then I went okay, knee and butt. Okay? Yeah. Then well, you have to knee change. another butt, then Indian style. Yeah. And then at the end, since I wasn't shooting, I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna lay down. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been me after five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I was laying down. And then I just come up and sit up a little bit see if I could still range find them. You know, like, okay, he's still like, you oh, know. Oh, man. And he, was, he had to obviously stay in a position where he could shoot. So his leg fell asleep at one point, and he had to use his hand to, like, move his leg around, you know. Oh, that's rough, man. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was fun, that some of the close yeah. calls we had, you know. And um, we, there was one where we were pursuing them. And then uh, he had taken a shot, but it was really far, like yeah. 75 yards. And uh, it was just underneath it. It ran off. And then we were trying to intercept them. And they're smart, you know. So, like, once they're spooked, they're very cautious. So, it's like five steps, stop, look around. Five steps, stop, look yeah. around. And they were going up mountains. So, this kind of thing, like, it's hard to chase them up the mountains. Yeah. You know, so we're trying to cut them off on the other end. But at a certain point, like, they were going to cross a boundary. Like, oh, we're going we're gonna to lose them. You know, so we had to make our move. Yeah didn't work out but that's awesome man like no for sure I'm glad you had that that experience uh, are the olympics over man just kind of switching topics yes they are over right? i don't know who won a lot. i know at least for wrestling the u.s yeah. got the most medals nice. so that was a big uh you see that achievement. guy uh, um there's a guy he broke a record for um Mikhail lopez the cuban guy mm. i met him when i was in cuba oh okay. i met him big big dude he won. He's the only guy who have ever won four consecutive Olympics. Oh, wow. Greco-Roman, heavyweight division. Oh, even over Carolyn, right? No, yeah, oh, Carolyn had three. Oh, yeah. He outdid Carolyn. Yes. Roland messed him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so that was, that was going to be his fourth, right? So this guy, Mihai Lopez, he did, um, yeah, four, cons- that's 16 years. That's amazing. Being on top of the world. That's, that's surreal to me because... If you, you think of jujitsu, like think of a guy who's been on top of the world forever, like Bushesha, right? For example, right? How, how long is that? We're talking six years where he was on top of the world, seven years maybe, right? Uh, or like Bruno Mofasini outdid him. Bruno has it 12 years, which is very impressive. I think he's got 12 world titles in like the same division. So he's won like 12 consecutive, yeah. something like that, right? Um, but this guy's 16 years, man, on top of his game. So that means he would have been like something like 20 in his first Olympics, one. And then 36 to win or whatever that, it's you know. super impressive. Because I, I was I, telling no my, my girlfriend had sent me an article, or I think I sent her one. It was a swimmer, a U.S. swimmer. He won the Olympics gold at 20 years old or 21, yeah. retired. And then, like, he just fell off the wayside. Apparently, he got into drugs and he got, yeah. into, he got overweight. And then after, like, five, six years of eating crap, he decided he was going to go back into the Olympics. <laughs> He got back in like at 35, won what a gold medal. What sport is that? It was swimming. I forget which yeah. one, but he won a gold medal, you know, at 35. Oldest like, swimmer to win a gold medal. So I thought that was fascinating because I'm like, that couldn't happen in jiu-jitsu martial arts because like the swimming technique 
like it's somewhat limited as far as like your, there's your not variations, I mean, right? swimmers will get angry when we say this but compared to martial arts there's not a lot of technique well no, no i it's mean there, not, there is yeah. technique but like it's it's, it's a bit more finite right like if you want yeah. a gold medal already you already know how to swim and yeah. you already are swimming like a world class there isn't yeah. a lot of innovation like oh you know now if we swim like this yeah. we're gonna get better there's some like gear like they can get like streamlined better, but like yeah. they're not going to mechanically swim better than, because the style is yeah. fixed. That's the other thing. Right. Like when you say a style, like you're saying, like whatever, uh, name me a style. Like the what do you call it? Yeah, the yeah, breaststroke, yeah. troke, whatever. There's a way you can't swim different. You right. can't come up with a new like you have to swim. That's that's what it's a style it's a, at right? the event. Yeah. So it doesn't change. The swimmers get better. The training technique gets better, yeah. but the style is the same. Whereas martial arts, like every tournament, it's the styles are changing. Yeah, it's very fluid. So yeah, we look just a like right now, MMA, 16 years ago, it's like the Stone Ages. Yeah. Like the, the technological evolution of all the, the moves is just, it blows away everything back. Like yeah. if you were like a, a champion, like what? It would have been like 2006, 2007. It's kind of almost worthless to like being a champion now. Yeah. Like they're very different worlds yeah. because our sport is evolving so much and it's so complicated. That even if it stopped evolving, just the amount of technique that you have to learn is enormous. It's a huge problem yeah. because you have, uh, as an instructor, you know this, you have a, an enormous problem in your hands because what is it that you select to teach? You have to make choices because you can't teach at all. Yeah. Like if I, 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 I wrote a curriculum once, and I remember it took two years to go full circle, and it was limited. It wasn't even that extent. So you're going to learn like two techniques a day every day for two years straight before you go back to the beginning. That's a lot that's of a lot of that's a lot of moves. That's a lot of moves. And I remember when I wrote this, it was something like four hundred. Like it was like it's not even, um, it doesn't even scrape the surface. There's just so much more because there are variations of the same move. Yeah. Right. So you have to make decisions as a coach as to what you're going to teach your students, and, and and you're talking about a big group of people and they have different ideas of what jujitsu is. So for example, you're going to go. I'm going to teach a lot of fundamentals, and then you're going to please a lot of students who can't do. They aren't perhaps very athletic or they're not very flexible. They got a gut on them, so they can't do a lot of fancy stuff. And then you're going to get your hardcore purple belt that's 22 with a shoulder rogi who's obsessed with like jujitsu videos on YouTube and spends half of his life on Instagram. That guy wants advanced technique. He wants what's new. He associates new with good. Yeah. Right? He makes that association. And you got those two demographics on the same mats. So you have to make a decision what demographic like please and there are a lot of gyms that pick one demographic or the other right i've always tried to run things somewhere in the middle which i think is one reason i've always managed to have like a big program i've always had a lot of guys in the gym but i've it's very hard to keep the margins i get people who feel it's not self-defense enough this is not you know um i mean it's too complicated for me and then you get the guys that are obsessed with bearing bolos and they're disappointed because they're not getting enough beer and bolos, you know, because that's all they want to do. Do you think they want to learn an armbar from closed guard? Yeah. That's below me, you know, in their mind. But that's like 2% of your students, 3% of your students. So you have to find a balance of what you're going to teach and what you're not going to teach. Because, and, and like you mentioned, and there's new stuff coming up all the time. I, I'm almost like, I want to even like sh shorten, instead of like expanding the canon, making it even smaller and just give people an idea of what those rabbit holes are and if they want to run with that rabbit hole that's on them because as an instructor of like 300 some students i yeah. can't focus on margins i have to focus on the body of what the group looks like right to have a healthy group 
super tough decisions though because you're gonna get all i mean I've, I've, i struggled with this in the past you get pressure from all ends you know who do you teach for because if you have a bunch of like 20 year olds that don't have a life well that's easy it's simple yeah or if you have a bunch of moms that just want to learn self-defense well that's also simple what if you got them all what do you do yeah 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 that's uh, what makes the training for the sport so difficult but at the same time it makes it very interesting right because there's more than one way to win right like so with swimming, you know, it's something that's very, like, binary in a sense. Like, you just have to go fast as you can this way. But jiu-jitsu or MMA, that's like, well, you can win by striking. You can win by, you know, wrestling. You can win by submissions. You can win by pinning or control. So, like, it, it, that's why I think it's the, the most complicated but most fascinating sport in existence. I, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. I'm, we're, we're biased. So, super you know, biased. Yeah, super biased. But, like, I can't think of it. I've made the argument. I think jiu-jitsu is more complicated than chess. Like, I can't think of anything that's more complicated because it's emotional. Too. There's, there's a lot more. There's a lot of more emotion involved. There's a, there's a lot more variables. Yeah. There's a lot of physiology involved. Yeah. The other sports, like, I mean, Rock and Mel, the, the extreme of, of exhaustion here all the time. You can be exhausted from wrestling in three minutes. Yeah. Even if you're in shape. We're, you don't want, like, three minutes. You could be an Olympic caliber athlete and gas yourself out in three or four minutes, depending on how sure. hard you're going. Yeah. Like, not many sports. Soccer, that doesn't happen. It doesn't yeah. happen in other sports, you know? Um, but, like, you, you know, you know like going back to the technique thing, man, and, and this is where I've, I don't think anyone's ever really figured this out because I don't think there is a solution. Perhaps there isn't. But we can all agree that the common denominator for success in fighting has very little to do with technique, per se, or specific techniques. Of course, you got to be technical. you got to know stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Because if that were true, if there were a particular style that is dominant, then everyone would naturally gravitate towards that style and all the champions would look exactly the same. Yeah. But if you follow, let's say, whether you want to follow IBJJF or any other league, it doesn't matter. Just watch the champions, right? And watch, you know, from roosterweight division, let's say, the, from the first to third place in all divisions, let's say Blackbone, you analyze their styles. Very different. Very, very different. Even in the lightweight divisions, you're like, okay, they prefer to be in guard, play, uh, play guard. But if you watch how like these guys play guard, it's not identical. They have their own styles. It's similar, but it's all different, right? My point is, it can't be a style that is a determining factor, right? So that my, it, you know, like my, take the classic example is Roger, who has like literally like four moves, five moves, but he does them with such precision that he's virtually unstoppable. Like like Kale Sanderson, you watch Kale Sanderson wrestle, and it's that ankle pick. Yeah. Over and over and over. Like Yamashita, the judoka, he had like he never lost a match as an athlete. He lost one match as a child, but he retired and defeated Yamashita. He had one move, Sotagari. It was like the first move you learn in a judo class. It's like the foot sweep. It's just anybody's yeah. unstoppable with it, right? My point is there must be something else that is the, 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 the common denominator is not the technique, is my point. The common denominator has to be mindset. It yeah. has to be how they perceive athletics, combat, how they perceive what they're doing. Because if it were technique, it would be someone we would have cracked that code a long time ago. Because it's on the surface, right? The technique is on the surface. You can learn it. You can, you know, drill it. It's, but gearing your mindset to victory is not on the surface. It's deep, 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 deep into your psyche. And I think this is why to me, I'm fascinated by this. Like I spent so much time. Like, what is? How is it that you can get someone who is insecure to become secure? How do you get someone who has no confidence, like, I'm never going to win, boycotts himself, gives up, you know, suffers from, like, too much anxiety, gets too nervous? How do you turn that person to an absolute killer who just laughs at the idea that they're going to lose that day? Because I'm, no, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've experienced this. Like, and I've experienced this maybe, like, three, four times in my life 
where I felt like that. Like I was absolutely invincible. Like you just like feel like, man, today I'm going to win. Yeah. And you look at your opponent and you're like, yeah, right. Like, you know what I'm saying? But it's normally you're dealing with what? I don't know. You know, my, my ankles kind of hurt and I had a bad week and this guy's really good. You know, you're always dealing with that doubt. I would love to see if, I mean, I would love to learn if some psychologist cracks this code or if anyone can actually get to the bottom of this. And like, how is it that we train our confidence and our, our determination to win, right? Our, our you know, uh, um, so our medal to win. Because that's, to me, that's the key. That's the, that's the dominant factor. You can have three techniques, man. If you have that heart and resolution to win, it doesn't matter. Like two techniques will win you a world title. Like it's not, it's not the amount or quality of the technique. It's just, I think it's something deeper. For sure it is. I, I can think of a few times as well where you hit that flow state, if you flow will, state, where yeah. like you're, you're in the zone. Yeah. I know uh, for me that was 2009 for ADCC. Yeah. I had uh, my first submission wins in ADCC were both my first two matches. And the second one was the more striking one, which was against Tarsus Humphreys. Yeah. It was a rematch for me that I lost in double overtime. So when I finished him within the first five minutes, uh, with Kimura trap, one arm choke, that was like, boom. And right after that, I felt invincible. I was already eyeing, uh, I was gonna fight Andre Galval next. I'm like, I'm gonna chew him up. Yeah. But I didn't realize it was the next day. I thought they did. Oh. I thought they went up to the finals. Oh man, I hate that. Yeah, I, I was, hate that. <laughs> I was tuned up. I was like, boom. And I remember everybody was going to go zone. Like, oh man, you got jujitsu now. You're doing submissions and this and that. Oh, and I was so in the zone. And then Galvao wasn't having a good day that first day. He looked kind of tired. Yeah. And he fought Chris Weedman and had a. Oh, I remember. It's close. It's close. Close. It's very close. He, he, he got that. out yeah. some tough Darce chokes yeah. and he won like in the overtime. I'm like, oh, especially now, he's totally worn out and he's going to have to grapple with me. He's done. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, wait, they're calling the mats? Like, what's yeah. going on? They, go, they only did the first two matches on day one. I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I, like, yeah. I had an adrenaline dump right there. I was like, I was so tuned in. And then what's interesting is what you're saying, what happens overnight. Like, for me, I, I never slept. Yeah. I was so excited. I was just thinking about that match and, like, every possible outcome. And how it would counter this, counter that. Heart rate was like, dun, 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 you know. So I didn't sleep well. No, 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 I didn't sleep at all. Yeah. I was up the whole night, and I remember I was like, well, I guess this is going to be the rest of the night, you know, just my heart going like 110 beats per second, you know. So like when I saw the sun come out, I'm like, oh, all right, here we go. Fuck. You know? And I don't know. I'm not sure if it was the effects of the weight cut also combined because I had cut really hard for that. I was the last guy to make weight. Ladies to see. I'm also the reason why I, I think they changed the weigh-in rules to like same day weigh-ins. Because they were really pissed that I took so long to make weight. Um, God Dave, you gotta ruin everything. I, for I, I, I ruined a lot, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm pretty yeah, sure that's yeah, what happened. Because they weren't the, the timing of it. The yeah. timing. They weren't yeah. happy because I missed the rules meeting, yeah. which was important and I figured out. And when I fought Gaval that I wasn't feeling, I wasn't in the same headspace. Yeah. Still a good match, though. I mean, you know, I had a good bite on the heel hook. I had a good bite in the Kimura trap. But something I missed out on the rules meeting cost me two points. Because mm. I guess they changed the rules that year where if you went for a submission and you failed, you could stay on your back and it wouldn't count as a sweep. Uh, I thought it would be a sweep. So, like, you know you what? I tried to stand back up. I tried to stand back up and he took me down, got two. 
off the and it would like essentially we're in a heel hook position yeah but he it looked like he was trying to get a knee slicer i'm like oh no i'm not gonna let that happen you know, yeah. you know what i'm gonna bail on this stand up and he just stood up with that yeah. took me down too and then when i got up uh he did a kimura trap had him stuck but ran out of time yeah and then I learned afterwards, if I would have just stayed on my butt, it would have been no point. Yeah, I lost to Jacques for similar reasons. Like, I completely spaced out because I thought if you shot in and sat, it wasn't two points. But I think it's something you have to stay on the shot for three seconds before yes. you sit. Yeah, yeah, for ADCC. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a weird, like, you have a lot of weird rules. Some, some of them, it doesn't make sense. But, like, I shot in and sat, and then Jacques scored two, and that's how I lost. But, but going that that flow thing, this is what when IBJJF like did they changed that where the semifinal and the final were the next day. When they changed that, I was no longer competing. I was so thankful because I think they changed it. They, I stopped my last year was two thousand seven. Was the last time I competed the world championships, and in two thousand eight, I think is when they changed it. My nine ten. It was like right after, right whatever that was. And I was so happy because I would have hated that because to me the hardest matches always first. the first one. It's not the final. It's yeah. always the first one. Physically and psychologically, both, right? Because when you go back home, not only do you cool, cool down, you go back to that state of anxiety and doubt, but you lose that. More importantly, you lose that flow. Yeah. Because a flow is a buildup. It's not something, I mean, maybe there's some guy out there who's genetically gifted who wakes up every morning in that flow zone. Like, like maybe Michael Jordan's like that. I don't know. Maybe there are these people that are excellent and they have that psychological advantage, which I, I strongly believe is genetic. I don't think... I think large, to a large extent, not completely, but I think some people just have something that other people have to work really hard just to come close to. But with, I never had that. Like, I have to build up my confidence to that flow zone. So I, I, that's why I always, like, like, the longer the tournament went, the better. I hated super fights because that's your first fight every time. Yeah. Like, if I have to tournament, like, four or five fights, like, better. Like, the more, the better because I feel like I personally benefited more from that buildup than other people did. Physically, and psychologically. Physically, I always died my first. I was like, like I mean, I, I lost count of how many times I'd, I'd crawl off the mats. I have nothing left in me. How am I going to come back for my second match? Give me 15, 20 minutes, catch my breath, still a little winded a second fight, you know, maybe tired from the first win, strategical win. It's in my final and final, I'm flying. Like on the final and I win, I'm like, oh man, I feel great. I can go again, you know? And that's why it's just such a mood killer to stop the tournament, the semifinal, send everyone back home. That's the other problem is the injuries. If you're going, if you got a bad toe, ankle or something, you keep going. Yeah, yeah. When you stop, cool down, eat, shower, sleep, next morning, man, you're in pain. And now you got to go back in there and warm up and do it all over again. I think it's a terrible idea to do that. I think you should get it all done in one day. I think almost every competitor would agree. I think very few people would prefer to go home, take a break. Because it takes, oh, you're resting. You're not resting. You're just losing that flow and you're just like giving your injuries an opportunity to scream at you. Yeah, I think, especially for like a 16-man tournament, four yeah. matches in one day is not asking a lot. Now, if it was like, I see some of the trials now, the like 128-man brackets. Okay, maybe you Six, want, that's six, six or seven. Is it six or seven? Yeah, yeah like maybe you want to rest. I, I, honestly, I've done 10, man, in one day. Oh, that's gnarly. I've done five. Yeah, that was uh, uh, the day before I got my black belt. It was uh, Brazilian Championships 2003. I beat some big names in Jiu-Jitsu. I'm not going to mention names, yeah. but like, I beat some big names. I, did, like, 2000, I won my weight class in the Open. All submissions, but by one match. One like, guy in the big name Jiu-Jitsu community. I beat him on points. Everyone else by submission. All in one day, back-to-back. -back. Like and I felt great, man. At the end, at the final, 
man, I felt like I could, I mean, I was hungry. My body was tired. Yeah. Like, like my body, I, I could feel my body like, you need to eat. But my mind and lungs, like if I had to run three miles, like I would have been able to run and not get because like my body was awake, so to speak. Uh, that year we also won, that was a big day because we were like a few points behind BTT. And when I won the Open, we barely passed BTT to claim first place. Oh, nice. So we, went, we all won the day for the team as well. So it was a big day. I got my black belt the next day or the next weekend, whatever it was. Um, but, yeah, man, like, I, I, love, I like that flow. I, I like longer. Believe it or not, man, like, the more matches, the better. The only issue is the food. Yeah. But I didn't know this at the time. Like, before I go, like, oh, I'm going to eat a hot dog. Not because I, I knew hot dogs weren't the best option, but yeah. there's, if you're in an arena, there are not a lot of options unless you bring food. Sure. And I, my dumb ass would bring pasta, which now I know is not the best thing to eat during matches, right, or in between whenever you get a break. I always recommend people bring nuts and seeds because they're very quick energy. But throw, throw some raisins in there if you want for the sugar. It's quick energy, and it's, it gives you stability of energy. There's no peak. Right? There's not a lot of sugar in them. And you have enough energy to keep going, and they're very light on the stomach. Mm. That's the beauty of it versus like eating, like have a meal, you know, like if you get like a lunch break or something. But other than that, man, I, I, actually, I actually like the, the, the long tournaments. Because I, I, I always did better at the end. Yeah. yeah, I know, like, at least early career, my stamina was always a key factor. You know, I always trained for that also. So I know, like, if we're going into later rounds, that I have an advantage. Yeah. I always felt that. Like, uh, that year that we had our absolute match before yeah. when I fought uh, Zanji, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a double overtime win. Yeah. Like I knew it off the get-go. I'm not going to score on him. Stylistically, stylistically, you could have called that because yeah. you're both top players. Well, no, and I know he's never had his guard passed, right? So I'm like, yeah. um, it's probably not going to happen today. Did he pull on you that day or no? Yeah. He did? I think initially, I know I, he pulled on me once. I might have, I've taken him down. I took him down once, but it wasn't a no points. But so. I remember you guys had a war. It was like 40, 30 minutes. What were they? Well, Here's the thing. So that year, it was 2007. So I fought Tarsus, and in the rules meeting, they said there was a single overtime. But I lost to Tarsus in double overtime, which I'm like, how is there two? They're like, oh, well, we can call two. So I'm like, oh, well, that's convenient. Okay, fine. The two is the limit. And he's like, yeah, two is the limit. So when I went to the absolute, I drew Zanji. I'm like, okay, I'm going to beat him in double overtime. Because yeah. I know that I'm just going to have to drag him out, wear him out. So when double overtime ends, I'm like, I got this. Yeah. And like triple overtime. I was like, yo, what happened to do? <laughs> but, 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 but this is the so thing. It was a 25-minute match. This is yeah. a constant complaint. See, like their rules change. Like I think that the, the referee kind of, they, they kind of make it up as they go. Like, it it's one of the, like because this is a, this is a, co- a constant problem. Like, when last year, you see this happening all the time. One criteria here, completely different criteria there. And when you say something, they get all angry. They don't want to hear it. I'm like, uh, you know. Yeah, like, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think that's very silly. Like, I, I, IBJF's got a lot of problems, but if there's a mistake, it's an individual mistake. The criteria is consistent. I think that's very, very important. Like, it's just consistent. Because you have to prepare strategically, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, you yeah. have to know. You're making decisions. You can't wonder, like, oh, it's whatever the referee's going to decide. Like, well, you know, you have to know what he's going to do when you do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, that's what I think a lot of people... Uh, there's that element to competition that some people miss out and they they oh i hate the point rules and all this like you're not it's the problem is you don't understand the rules well enough to play them because they're meant to be played right 
So whenever I competed, I always did my best to understand the rules and how I would use them to win. Because you don't necessarily have to be the best jiu-jitsu guy or best uh, technician to win a match. You just have to understand how you can win by the rules and exploit yeah. that. So like, for example, with Zanji, at that point, he was a better jiu-jitsu guy than me. But I had better stamina and yeah. better wrestling. I'm like, I could beat you just by being able to impose my will and grind you out and hopefully get you tired enough where you make a mistake. Yeah. You know? So, uh, I mean, you can win that way. And that's a lot of people end up winning that way and they get frustrated. It's like, you have to understand the rules better. You know, like yeah. if you're a competitor, these are your limitations and you're doing everything you can within those limitations to get some type strategy of strategy is a fact of sports I, I yeah. it drives me crazy like here's the thing there are things you can do to make it less um ibgf can be too complex and bureaucratic at times or too many too many band-aids on the problem right so to speak uh but there's no way around it there is no such thing as creating a rule set it's not going to have strategy this happens in every sport like you're going to create a framework on you're going to create the limitations of what competitors can and can't do and within that framework they're going to you're going to tread on the edge of what the rules allow. That's what's, I mean, it's going to happen. And I think that the, the, the fans, you know, they want to see a spectacle all the time. And if you're a competitor, this is a, the former competitor speaking, and every competitor, they may not admit this, but they're going to agree with me. It's like, you don't give a shit what the fans think. You want to win. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I go out there to throw a show for the fans. I'm like, yeah, that's what you tell people because you know that's what people want to hear, right? If you're winning an exciting this style, it's because you are exciting by nature. It's not a choice to be exciting to please the fans. You walk in there, you want to win, right? That's what you're trying to do. If you end up being, I would, I was, I had moments where I was excited. For the most part, I wasn't exciting to watch. I'm not an explosive guy to begin with. Like to me, I don't give two shits. I, I want to win. Like that's why, I, that's what I was doing. It was about, yeah. you know, like I, I think that some people are naturally exciting to watch. Like, they have that. Like for like Jacques is an extremely explosive competitor. Like he had that, right? So for him to throw, and he's got really good judo, so he'd throw like amazing throws. Like, oh, it was, it's easy to like that as a fan, right? But to say that he's doing that intentionally to please the fan, I don't buy it. That's when people say, like, oh, I only go for the submission. I'm hardcore. I, I don't buy it. I lost because I only go for the submission. Bullshit. If you could have won by advantage, 1,000%, you would have preferred that than losing because I only go for the submission. I, I don't believe it. I think it's great to tell people that because maybe it's it makes I don't know makes people feel that better about jujitsu, but it's not realistic, right? And even in the no time limit sub only rules, uh, there's strategy to be played. There's tons of strategy. If you, that's the one thing like I don't like the uh, sub only rules as far as like ten minute round and then goes into the sudden death period. Because what ends up happening, a lot of guys just stall 10 minutes yeah. and they go into overtime where they've been training their drills. That's all they train. So they're very yeah. good at, you know, back finishes or whatnot. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I mean, you won within this rule set, which is essentially survive 10 minutes, then attack yeah. the final 10 minutes, you know, in the, in the sudden death. Or even when you do no time limit, sometimes people are like, I'm just going to wait 30, 40 they, minutes before I go into action. They, 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 they try to solve a problem, they created a bigger one. That's, that's all we have. And, and, and not to toot my own horn, but I, when this whole thing started, whatever, six, seven years ago, like, I kind of called them. Like, this is what's going to happen. Everyone's going to specialize in overtime. Because yeah. that strategically, as a competitor, if I look at the rule set, first thing I want to do is like, how am I going to use this to my favor? Yeah. Right? It's the first thing you do. Don't take any chances during the 10 minutes. Stay safe. And then you hyper-specialize in the overtime. Right? And then, you know, hopefully you put more time into that than your opponents did. 
But yeah, it's it's. But again, there. I don't think there is a a perfect rule set, man. Like I have, I'm I'm trying to put a, a tournament together to do like an in house, like some super fights, and I'm borrowing for a little from submission only, a little bit from ADCC, IBJF, and I'm trying to come up like, well, how can we create a perfect rule set? I'm going to allow heel hooks in the gi. No one's ever done that before. Yeah. No, there's only one tournament that's done that before. Hicks and Grace's Budo Challenge in 2005. They allowed heel hooks in the gi. You know how many people I saw get heel hooked in that gi that day? Mm. Zero. <laughs> Which I think it's harder to heel hook in the gi than no gi. I don't know why everyone's all terrified mm. of the heel hook in the gi. I think it's the other way around. I think in the no gi, it's more dangerous. Because the other thing, too, it would be easier to defend in the gi. Because if you're fighting for a hook and you got a sleeve, I grab your sleeve. Yeah, and then it's, it's over. Yeah. That's it. And it's, that's, that grip is not easy to break if we're both. If we both got our butts on the ground and I got your sleeve, it is so hard to break that grip. If you're standing, you can break it. But when you're on the ground, you don't have that pullback. It's just your arm versus his arm. I think there'll be very few heel hooks, but I'm, I'm thinking about allowing it and creating somewhat of a more dynamic rule set that favors submission over position, but doesn't can position. I think that was the great problem with submission. They, they, they had the right intention, let's make this more dynamic and submission oriented, but they, they kind of swung all the other way and they eliminated positioning completely because you don't see guys wrestle because strategically. Yeah. I mean, unless you get two wrestlers in there, you're going to see them wrestle. But other than that, strategically, it doesn't even make sense to take all that risk and all that effort into taking someone down. Yeah, for me, the scoring system behind jiu-jitsu was always based on how these positions translated to MMA. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. takedowns should be valuable because being on top in MMA is very valuable. Very valuable. You know what I mean? So like, remember, I came up with what I considered the perfect rule set. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's got their own perfect rule set, by the way. We, we, got their own my, my brother and I ran a tournament yeah. with it, and it was very successful. Yeah. Very few overtimes, uh, a lot of high-scoring matches. Because yeah. that's the whole thing. Like To me, if you're going to use score, you need to make it easy to score. Yeah. Right? Or, and at the very least, scoring should create excitement. Like, this going to be an interesting exchange of motion. So you are going to incentivize people to take chances because it's, it's simple to score. That's like my whole gripe with the ADCC scoring. It's so difficult to score. Yes. That it de-incentivizes taking yeah. chance, yeah. right? Because you know, like, man, if it's so hard to score. If I just lose one point, I'm done. That's like game over already, you know? So with ours, like you take down with two points, pull guard minus one. If you stand up off your back, you get one back. So I could pull guard, doesn't work out, stand up, I'm back to zero, which makes sense. Other guy didn't do anything, I penalize myself, I come up, I recover. Yeah. Or at the same time, I take you down two points, you pop up to your feet, you get one, you did something interesting, you came up, right? And you were able to get off from somebody's top position. So like taking that. it back without hooks was a point. You know, there was, there was a lot of ways to score points. So as a result, there was always something to do where you could you can take a chance to get rewarded for it. Yeah. You know, there wasn't any motion that you would make that wasn't rewarded. Yeah. So, uh, you, you have to reward yeah. people. I, and and I, it's, it's like you have to like understand human nature. Like if you think of it as an investment, it's like the analogy I make, talk about money, people understand it easier for some reason. If I, if I said, Dave, I got this investment, whereas if you win, you win a lot. And if you lose, you lose nothing or very little. You like that idea. Yeah. But if I came up with an investment, Dave, there's a lot of risk here, very small reward. Yeah. You were like, no, thank you. Right? And, and that's very simple. Everyone, no, you don't have to be like a financial wizard to understand this. Simple enough, right? Yeah. Everyone wants high reward, low risk. 
when it comes to fighting, like people don't always seem to understand that. They're like, no, it, you have to be low reward and high risk. I'm like, that's not going to work, man. Like, no one's going to be diving for, like, that submission all, all the time if they're not being rewarded for the attempt or if they're not going to be digging down for that takedown. Everything, every effort should be rewarded. Yeah. Aggression should be rewarded. Like, there has to be something that makes people want to. I remember, like, the, the, the Budo Challenge was, it was sort of like a radical solution, but I, th- I actually think it was, they're up, they were on the right track. They had a three to one ratio. They might have pushed it a little too far, but the three to one ratio was three points for every near submission and one point for positioning. So people never stopped going for takedowns and passing guard. You're still being rewarded. And if you pass the guard, you're closer to submission anyway. But, you know, the second there was an opportunity to jump a flying arm or go for that footlock or go for that guillotine, there was no stalling because you knew. That you, if you, if, if you could, I mean, you win if you get the submission. If you don't, and it's close, you get the three points. That gives you a large advantage, you know, if it was a close fight. That's three points for a near submission. Just to give you, like, you know, to keep things in perspective, IBJJF grants you one advantage for that. It's not a lot. Yeah, yeah. For the amount of risk you're taking on a flying armbar, for example, right? Uh, but, like, a three-point ratio, like, man, you have to pass someone's guard three times. Take them down three times to match that near submission. Now, you could argue that they pushed it. To, that's a little too much of a disparity. But I think they were on the right track because that solves the issue of aggression without getting rid of the problem of not having positioning. No one's going to, you're not going to let anyone pass your guard. You're not going to let anyone, you know what I'm saying? You're going to yeah. win submission only. If it gets too hard, too much, you let them pass and go like this. Yeah, yeah. And, then and you wait. You cross your arms on your chest and you wait. And this works. You know how much skill it takes to do this? You could teach an athletic white belt to do this. And he'll give me or you a run for for our money. Yeah, yeah. Week one. You can train him one week to do this. And he'll make any black belt like struggle to put him away. Because it's very easy to cross your arms to your chest and not move. It really doesn't take a lot of skill. No. You know? It doesn't. Anyway. Um, Dave, I got to go, man. I got my day with my kids today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, man, you got me excited about that hunting thing. I'm dead serious about meeting your friend, by the way. Oh, like, yeah. I would love to. I mean, if the opportunity uh, presents itself. Um, I would love to. I got I got to fire a thousand arrow shots before I could go <laughs> practice staying on my knee for my knees for ninety minutes. I don't think I can do that one. Um, but yeah, and then um, yeah, maybe we'll do a podcast when I come back from Hawaii. Like kill a boar with a knife. Yeah, man, that'd be awesome. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's intense. And uh, yeah, let's shoot for another one next week, man. I'm free. Awesome. We'll be, I'm, I'm not going anywhere for a while, so. All right. Very cool. Very cool. We'll do it. All right. All right, guys, always a pleasure. Thank you, Dave, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, like, share, comment, follow, do all that good stuff on social media. You can find everything at breakingtheguard.com. It has links to all of our different properties, podcasts, channels, and social media accounts. Until next time, take care. A final word from your sponsor, me. on the bjjretreat.com so i'm going to be hosting another jiu-jitsu retreat here in las vegas uh, from november 2nd to the 8th and that's just a couple days before the ibjjf masters world tournaments here in vegas so if you're planning to compete in that you might want to come a week early so you can get some quality training and technique and also just have a good time in general when we do the retreats these are not intense, rigorous camps. They're, they're more based on technique and also just having fun. The last camp that we did 
uh, we went hiking at Red Rock Canyon, a nice easy hike. Uh, we I taught some firearm instruction and how to use a draw from a holster, presenting all that stuff, and then took them out to the desert the following day. Got to shoot, you know, live ammunition, rapid fire, doing all sorts of cool stuff. Guys had a blast, literally. <laughs> and uh, he did some axe throwing, some spear throwing, shurikens, and uh, did some saunas and ice baths. It was a really good time. And I was smoking up bison and all the meats that I have here. And now I have some elk in my freezer. So I'll probably save some of that for the camp too. So you guys can enjoy that besides the training that we'll be doing, which will be about three hours a day, five days. And uh, again, really relaxed pace. So if you're planning on competing, it'll be a good way to flow into there. Or if you're just coming to watch or just want to come into town to train, hey, you don't have to complain. And the best part is that it's going to be 30% off for this month of August. It's our early bird special. So that's going to save you a lot of mula. We, only have, we have limited spaces in the house, of course. So we only have uh, for eight people in the house. And we'll take six more outside the house. So there's a total of 14 that I cap it at. And uh, if you want to register, just go to bjjretreat.com. It has all the details, a schedule, and uh, everything you ever want to know. So go ahead and visit there. You can, of course, send me an email as well. It's going to be on that website also. So just go ahead and visit bjjretreat.com. Go ahead and uh, reserve your spot. So we'll see you here in Las Vegas from, again, that's November 2nd to the 8th.